0: Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at FemCoffeePod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today our guest is Jacqueline Streifeld Hall from the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So can you tell us uh, what is the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect?
1: Sure. Uh, the Global Center is an organization that was created in 2008 to help promote the concept or norm of the responsibility to protect. And so the responsibility to protect is this UN idea that was created following the genocide in Rwanda and the genocide in Srebrenica in the 1990s, because there was this international failure to respond to the genocides and the crises and sort of this trend of incapacity to kind of adequately face the challenge of mass atrocity crimes. So Responsibility to Protect was created as a means to sort of encourage international response, encourage uh, a way of going beyond the ideas of state sovereignty which was used as an excuse not to intervene in the past to sort of say that states have an individual responsibility to their population. They have responsible sovereignty to prevent and protect them from four mass atrocity crimes, which is war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. And if states are failing in that responsibility to protect their populations, then the international community has two sort of main functions it must play. One is to assist Assist the state if a state is willing. So, basically, saying to another country, we can provide you training, we can provide you development assistance, those sorts of things in order to build your capacity to provide the protection to your population. Or if a state is manifestly failing or just unwilling to protect its population, in the case of countries where the government itself is a perpetrator, for example, then the international community has a responsibility to intervene in some way. That doesn't necessarily mean inter- military intervention. It can mean sanctions, uh, diplomatic action. But those are sort of the main ideas behind Responsibly Protect. And so the Global Center was created to do two main functions. One is to promote the concept of R2P and encourage more states to uphold their responsibilities. And then the other side of it is to actually do monitoring of countries where populations are at risk of atrocity crimes and do advocacy around those countries to try and influence international action.
0: And what's the responsibility between the Global Center and the U.N.? Are you part of the U.N.? Are you separate from the U.N.? How does that work?
1: We're totally separate. We're an NGO. We're actually uh, we're located within the CUNY Graduate Center. We're not a U.N. body at all, but we talk about how we, have, we play sort of an insider-outsider role. So we're not part of the U.N. We're not funded by the U.N., but we have partnerships with different offices within the UN. Uh, for example, there's actually an office on the prevention of genocide and the responsibility to protect, which has two special advisors. One is the special advisor on the prevention of genocide. The other is the one on R2P. And then we also work sort of one-on-one with member states and we serve as a secretariat for sort of these, um, we call it communities of commitment. Um, so it's uh, We have a group of friends of R2P, which has more than 60 members, Um, and so we're sort of the convener for that. We bring the states together, make sure they have their meetings, help set the agenda, that sort of thing.
0: One of the reasons I wanted to uh, have you on was just because I think you do very important and interesting work, and I want to talk to you about it. Uh, We're recording right now on June 11th. Last week, there was an atrocity alert issued about the United States. Can you tell me about that?
1: Sure. So Atrocity Alert is our weekly uh, publication where we typically try and alert people about situations where mass atrocities are currently going on or where conditions within the country are escalating to such a level where there's a risk of atrocities if action isn't taken. Um, And so typically we're focusing on the countries that I would consider active atrocity situations. We publish a lot on Syria, Yemen, Myanmar. Countries in the Sahel region have had a lot of issues.
2: I'm sorry, countries in the the what region? The
1: Sahel. So it's countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and that general area of Western Africa. Thank you. (laughs) So um, occasionally we'll look at a sort of more long-term prevention situation. Uh, a lot of times recently that has had to do with protests of some sort. So we did, we've did, we done pieces on countries where there are ongoing protests in the past, such as Chile and India most recently uh, with the riots that happened a few months ago. And the idea is that with, with RTP, we're constantly saying that no country is immune to mass atrocity crimes. All countries should be doing sort of the domestic level prevention work at all times. And I think the the perception a lot of times, and one of the criticisms of r 2 is that a lot of people see it as a Western norm meant to impose change on countries in Africa and Asia. And so One thing we really wanna be clear about is that the prevention work is important for everyone, including places like the United States. And so one of the reasons we wanted to focus on the United States last week was because really two factors. One was sort of what the protests were about, which is institutionalized racism in America, and the fact that this is something that is a recurring issue that creates tensions between populations. And it's something that hasn't properly been dealt with, either through policy or through any sort of reconciliation process between communities, um, or even through our education system. And so there are all sorts of things that need to be developed that the U.S. could be doing better. The other side of it is the response to protests. And... There's a group of UN advisors that are mandated by the Human Rights Council in Geneva called Special Rapporteurs, and they each have sort of this very specialized mandate. Some are on um, freedom of religion, uh, protection from racism, Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial killings, and they had put out a series of really good statements framed around the protests explaining how the response by police to the protesters violated various international laws, specifically around the use of force, uh, what types of tools they were using and how they were using them. So for example, police were using technically non-lethal methods of controlling crowds, but if you're using a tear gas canister and throwing it at someone's head, presumably with the intent to cause physical harm. I mean, in many cases, I think journalists have lost eyes, um, that sort of thing. So all of those things violate international law. And we wanted to sort of say, this isn't a situation where we think that a genocide is about to occur. We don't think that crimes against humanity are occurring in a systematic way, but it's on this sort of track where if you don't take the proper precautions, if you don't address the methods that are being used in some way, then you're setting yourself up for a situation that could worsen and could um, evolve in a certain way. And I think one thing to also note is that we work with this tool the UN created called the Framework of Analysis for Atrocity Crimes, and all of these things are risk factors for atrocity crimes. And I think, I mean, a lot of news articles came out over the last few weeks sort of joking about how... Americans or, you know, other people from the West would write a report on an African country facing the problems we're having now. And they were sort of these sort of tongue-in-cheek, like, you know, in the Midwestern state of Minnesota, riots broke out. And, you know, but it but it is true that like if we saw this in another country, we would be very concerned. And obviously, in those other countries, there are other factors at play, but we can't ignore the factors here just because it's the US and we have, we supposedly have rule of law and other mechanisms to prevent against atrocities.
2: I think this is something that people are kind of struggling with right now, like finding that balance that you're describing, where it's like, are we really? Just like one step away from like martial law, neo-fascist, or I don't know if it's even all that neo, but like a fascist kind of autocracy kind of thing. Or are we kind of overblowing it on the other hand? Like, is this part of the upheaval that comes before progress, you know? And I'm wondering, because your organization kind of specializes in these things, If you could help put that into context, at least for what we know on June 11th, (laughs) if you could help put that into context, like, I I can't imagine you can predict the future. (laughs) You you mentioned other... uh, other factors at play in these things. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk us through a little bit of that.
1: Sure. Yeah, I definitely can't predict the
2: future. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to give you that out first.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of political scientists try, but, um, but we don't, to the best of our ability, try and be fortune tellers. But I appreciate the nature of the question, because I think that's something that we were definitely grappling with when we wrote the piece, is how do you convey the risks and convey our concerns for the situation without being overly alarmist. One of the other things that concerned us in the U.S. case is obviously rhetoric by people like President Trump and various other congressmen that would constitute hate speech,
2: I think. You mean like like Tom Cotton's uh, op-ed?
1: Yes, exactly. That one in particular, um, I believe Matt Gates, is that how you pronounce his name? I think from Florida. He was also one of the people flagged by Twitter for glorifying violence and glorifying police violence in particular. So those sorts of things can also be forms of triggers, which obviously is a concern for us. I think in in other countries, what we look at, which would kind of be a bigger red flag than what's happening in the U.S., is the systematic nature of the use of force. And whether or not it's a direct policy versus kind of the culture of the forces. And I think in the U.S., I'm, I could be wrong. I'm not an expert on policing. But as far as I know, it's there isn't a direct strategy consistent across the country, even consistent across the state, where the idea is to
0: always control crowds with force. And yet we saw it. It, it was not like, I don't think anything that anyone had ever seen before where you had protests in all 50 states and you saw police violence in many, many, many places all at once. And like you said, you know, police departments are varied. Some are controlled, have more local control. Some are more state controlled. There's a difference between like in New York, there's village code enforcement and there's county police and there's state troopers. And those are all different uh, jurisdictions but yet you still saw police brutality and police violence against peaceful protesters. So that, yeah, there's no United States police strategy that I know of, or that can be uniformly enforced across jurisdictions. And yet you saw the same results and it's terrifying.
2: Yeah. And I also wonder a little bit about kind of the militarization aspect that is kind of coming federally with surplus military equipment going to Departments that aren't coordinated in their responses, but providing the tools for escalation um, and for the use of of mass force. And I also wonder, even though it's not governmental policy, there are certain kind of political propaganda networks, like Trump's favorite one, uh, was it One America or something, news network, you know, that's like really detached from it's bullshit. (laughs) I'm just gonna say it. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's propagandic bullshit. And like we, we know it because we're not brainwashed into the propaganda bullshit, but this is kind of a, a national news network that is pushing a narrative that is, you know, authoritarian and that that's going to these militarized police forces. So even though these things aren't, coordinated to be the use of force against peaceful protest or rowdy protest, uh, but not necessarily violent protest for the most part, obviously. I can't cover it with a blanket statement, but um, somehow it feels coordinated, even if it wouldn't be classified that way.
1: I agree. I think there are kind of two things in in what you said that are of interest to the kind of work that we do, which is, you know, with this these kind of national news networks um, that are really some form of propaganda machine. I mean, we've seen this in other atrocity situations in the past. Der Sturmer in Germany during the Nazi era and the Holocaust obviously was kind of more of a propaganda machine than a proper news network. And there were similar agencies at work in Rwanda ahead of the genocide in 1994. And actually someone was just arrested I want to say two weeks ago, maybe maybe three weeks ago. Time's a little fuzzy in COVID era. But after being on the run for you know almost 25 years, he was arrested in France uh, a few weeks ago. And he his sort of claim to fame in the genocide was that he ran a newspaper that was specifically designed to sort of undermine one population and create fear in the other to sort of stoke these feelings that could be mobilized at the point at which the genocide started so that you could kind of convince people that their neighbors were the enemy because they've already been told through newspapers for several years that you should be afraid of these people. And then the radios kind of enhanced that from there. We also saw similar things happen in Kenya following their election in 2007, where the various news agencies were directly implicated in their role in kind of stoking the violence that happened there, um, and yeah, the, I mean the the kind of militarization of of the police forces is really concerning. Um, that's one of the risk factors that we look for in atrocity crimes: is uh, increased capacity to commit crimes, and uh, you know, improving your uh, machinery. <laughs> so to speak, or, you know, increasing the number of weapons and types of weapons that the police have is concerning. And the deployment of, you know, military forces in the streets is a huge red flag. But so far, I mean, by comparison to what we see in other places that we focus on, as scary as all of this is, it's still on a a very different scale. So the atrocity alert that Elizabeth mentioned that we put out last week, you know, the head story was the US, but the the story on the bottom of the piece was about the one year anniversary of protests that happened in Sudan last year. And on June 3rd, sorry, I need to look at the calendar. On June 3rd last year, there was sort of a peaceful protest that had been going on outside the army headquarters for about three months. Um, So basically from when President Omar al-Bashir was removed from office until June, these protesters were outside army headquarters in Khartoum every day because they wanted to see a civilian-led government. So the military overthrew Bashir and they were hoping he would be replaced with an elected government government or at least a government that wasn't totally run by the military. And so they had these protests daily. They were peaceful. They were just sit-ins. And one day the military just decided, you know what, we need to clear this out now, and went on the offensive, and they killed over 100 people. I want to say 40 or so people. I mean, as far as they've recorded, I'm sure it's more than that, were raped. Um, There was sort of rampant sexual violence. People were shot, you know, gruesomely injured if they weren't killed. So it's... I think for us, because we focus on mass atrocity crimes, there's still a scale issue that the US hasn't quite met. I mean, the warning signs are all there that this could get much worse, you know, if military is deployed more widespread in the cities. But until we reach that point, I don't think we're quite on kind of the atrocity scale.
0: So you said that you work with governments who want to prevent atrocities in their own borders, and there's like a set of guidelines. Do you have an official relationship with the United States? We do to some degree. So we
1: are the secretariat for uh, what's called the Global Network of R two P Focal Points, which means that we um, we basically set the agenda for their meetings. We make sure the meetings happen annually. We. sort of serve as the go-between for governments when they're drafting a joint letter, a joint statement, um, to kind of make sure that everything is is kept, all the ducks are in a row. And so the global network of RTP focal points, which we serve as a secretariat for, is a network of, I think at this point it's 51 states, plus the European Union and the Organization of American States, both have one, that have appointed a, a single person who's supposed to be the focal point for atrocity prevention essentially so they communicate directly with us and they're supposed to you know educate others within their government on atrocity prevention interact with various different ministries that would have a role in either domestic or international atrocity prevention efforts so you know some of them are in, t- in touch with legal departments some of them we have a focal point for example who uh, works closely with the education department and has done a lot of work around sensitization on refugees to make sure that children are educated on human rights and respect for refugees and refugee law and international humanitarian law because it's sort of that long term sensitization to prevent atrocities. But so in that sense, we have a a connection to the United States because the United States has had a focal point for the last, I think, six years or so. And then we also have a connection with the permanent mission to the UN here in New York because they're also a member of that group of friends of R2P at the UN that I mentioned earlier.
2: So I feel like now I understand a little bit structurally, but could you kind of describe in what ways RTP could be, or specifically your your um, organization, Global Center, is working with the U.S.? Like, is there any, like, intervention that could be done, like, pragmatically? Like, what can
0: you do and what can't you do as a group? And to add on, is there model legislation? I guess not, but is there?
1: Uh, as far as I know, there's not model legislation. We talk about sort of broad kind of concepts for legislation about increasing inclusivity, protecting minority rights, ensuring that Uh, We talk about education policy, we talk about policies for the security sector and making sure police and military are trained on uh, civilian protection measures, so not attacking people but actually providing them with protection, but also, you know, respect for human rights, what international human rights law looks like and how it applies to them and their methods.
2: So you may notice a difference in audio quality that just happened just due to some technical difficulties in recording?
1: A lot of countries we talk to don't have any sorts of legislation on the books related to these things. So, for example, you know, one policy ask we have, which seems really broad, but is actually incredibly important, is saying that you need to create legislation that makes perpetrating atrocity crimes illegal, because then courts can actually prosecute those crimes. Um, So it's something, for example, we've been advocating for in Iraq for several years because there was a genocide of the Yazidi population that started in 2014, and they want to do a lot of the trials domestically. But in order to do that, you need to have certain policies on the books. So it's something that we encourage states to do. And that's why, as a result, we, we often don't have sort of a more granular policies uh, or legislation to recommend because we're often working on a more macro scale.
0: Uh, if people in, these, in our audience want to lobby their governments as citizens, what are the kinds of things they should talk about when they are calling their congressperson or member of parliament or equivalent?
1: There are different types of countries that we interact with. Some are countries where they're actively perpetrating atrocity crimes. The government is the perpetrator. And in those countries, I think there's unfortunately not much that populations within the country can do to to improve their own situation, or at least in terms of interacting with the government. Where it's available to them, they can participate in different types of, of dialogue with the government, You know, for example, the conflict in Afghanistan, they've been trying to have this, what they call the intra Afghan negotiations for the past year or so, which would involve kind of leaders of civil society groups, leaders of religious groups coming together to have more of a communal dialogue, as opposed to just sort of the government, the US, and the Taliban negotiate. The idea behind that is to make sure that once the conflict is over, the resolution to the situation actually meets the needs of the entire population, not just the warring parties. And you can see that in some other situations. The other kind of aspect of who has influence beyond just governments in situations like that that really is something that um, the UN office on prevention of genocide has tried to engage in recent years, which is the role of religious leaders in prevention of atrocities. So oftentimes populations don't have access to government officials either because you know it's just not a democracy in the in the same way we have or because you know remote areas don't always have government presence we often look at countries where the government controls the area around the capital and not much else. They have governors and regional sort of state leaders, but they're often not there. And in those cases, it's often sort of local civil society groups that have a lot of sway and have a lot of, Capacity to at least communicate with the government. Um, And so, working with them and joining those types of community groups is really impactful. Um, And then, working with religious leaders is also one that's very common in a lot of countries. I would say, in in places throughout the world, particularly, you know, Christian and Muslim religious leaders are very active in, in these processes. In a lot of countries that We work on religious leaders sort of do messaging around um, intercommunal dialogue, or they facilitate the dialogue themselves, but they also work on a much larger scale at times. So, for example, the country that I specialize in is Democratic Republic of the Congo, and there were sort of highly contentious elections a few years ago where basically the president was delaying the elections for many years and kept coming up with new reasons for why the elections couldn't be held and he couldn't be voted out of office. And it was actually a group of Catholic bishops that kind of came together and started putting pressure on the government to move forward with the election process. And at some point, they were involved in like physical protests in the streets, and then at other points, they actually engaged the government in dialogue and negotiation, sort of saying, "This is what the population wants. This is what the population needs," uh, and really put pressure in a way that other domestic groups hadn't yet found the capacity to do, which was really kind of interesting. And in there are like sort of numerous press statements that came out and letters between sort of the head bishop of the country and the president kind of coming to this agreement around the election process. But those are in countries where atrocities are, are ongoing. I think to answer Elizabeth's question from the perspective of countries that are more like the U S where atrocities aren't actively occurring, you're sort of looking long-term at, at prevention. I mean, some of it would be about, sort of learning about what kinds of policies the government already has in place around atrocities. And I guess starting with educating there and seeing whether those are kind of domestically oriented or only exclusively externally oriented. So the US, for example, has fairly extensive atrocity policy that's all external. You know, we have what's called the Global Magnesty Act, which is a way of imposing sanctions on people in other countries who are perpetrating atrocities. Obama created the Atrocities Prevention Board, which was this mechanism for getting people from different government agencies to sit down once a month, talk about atrocity risks around the world, and develop an actual national policy on atrocity prevention. Uh, And the person who is the R2P focal point during the Obama Era was sort of the head of that board. So it was kind of the person who we talked to directly had the ear of the members of the government that were setting these sort of atrocity agendas. Um, And then legislation-wise, we also have um, congressmen passing a lot of um, legislation over the past year even related to atrocities in other countries. So for example, a few weeks ago, there was a policy or a law there was legislation adopted uh, related to the Uyghur situation in China, um, basically saying that China needed to, you know, stop putting the Uyghur population in what are effectively concentration camps in China. Um, the Senate and House passed numerous laws last year related to Myanmar, and then also ones related to stopping U.S. assistance to. The countries that are doing the bombing in Yemen, and Trump conveniently vetoed all of those. So there's a lot of sort of action externally in the U.S., and I think there are a lot of advocacy groups like ours that do a good job of lobbying for policies like that to sort of say the U.S. has a lot of leverage in the world. You need to use that leverage to help stop atrocities in other countries, or you need to use your power in a good way. You know, we shouldn't be using our military power to sell arms to the Saudis if the Saudis are then using those weapons to bomb people in Yemen. But I don't think there are as many people doing that kind of lobbying about domestic policy because it's so varied. The breadth of things you would have to look at, it's it's more of kind of um, a chipping away or kind of working on an issue by issue and seeing who specializes in those issues. So for example, you know, who's looking at how the police are trained, what sorts of of force are they using? How can we either reform or remove those capacities? Those sorts of things. But you know, similarly, lobbying for different types of minority rights is a form of atrocity prevention, but there isn't sort of this consolidated way of asking for atrocity prevention in particular. I would say one exception that we've seen is in countries like, I think Peru is the one example that I know where their focal point was the ombudsperson for human rights. Um, that was his official job title. And so he was specifically someone that you could go to to report on human rights violations, report on violations that could amount to atrocities, and sort of have the ear of the government on um, what policies they could enact to protect human rights specifically and, by extension, prevent atrocities domestically. Um but it's a bit of a stretch. There's, it's all sort of piecemeal when it comes to the domestic side of things. Often with domestic stuff, because it's prevention as opposed to response, you're not looking to respond to a specific risk most of the time. You're sort of doing broad atrocity prevention as opposed to, you know, in a, a situation like Yemen, since I just referenced it, you can kind of say the problem in Yemen is that people are being bombed with indiscriminate weapons. Therefore, one way to stop this problem is to stop selling weapons to the people using them. Does that make sense?
2: So I know this is somewhat unrelated to what you've been saying right now. We've been on the topic of, but you mentioned um, certain protections that had been put in place internationally that have been either vetoed or rolled back in certain ways by the current administration in the u.s and i keep thinking about the argument that hillary clinton would have been just as bad as trump obama was just as bad when we look at bombing black and brown people particularly that that's that's something that people really try to say a lot um and i I don't want to disavow that because U.S. intervention has been cruel and bloody, particularly like from Woodrow Wilson on, you know, the U.S. has had a really, and and even before, you know, from the founding of the U.S., (laughs) we have had a really bad run with these things. However, there is, I think, a nuance in that, and I'm not sure if that's like a reasonable argument, but regardless of that, Would you say that the U.S.'s use of its influence, the use of its power internationally has been, since Trump came into office, that we've seen less intervention against atrocities or prevention of atrocities since Trump's election?
1: I think there, there have been a lot of kind of new challenges that have come out since Trump's election. I can't say the U.S., has necessarily been a direct inhibitor of of prevention around the world. I think we're still doing a lot of prevention related activities in sort of the lesser reported situations, and we have a, a really complicated role in the situation in Afghanistan. Um, you know, as a perpetrator ourselves, and you know, since you referenced the date at the start of the podcast, I'll mention that earlier today, Trump announced that he would be. I think imposing sanctions and um, some other restrictions on the ICC because it's decided to go forward with an investigation into the Afghanistan situation. And so we're definitely not a benevolent player in that conflict, but, you know, we've been involved in negotiations that have at times led to a decrease in fighting. There is kind of a balance where a lot of it is self-interested. It's not necessarily in the name of atrocity prevention, but we are at times making some positive change. But I would say on the whole, we're still not doing very well. The thing that my organization knows best is obviously the UN side of things, since we're based in New York. And what we've seen over the past, certainly over the past decade, but I would say in the last few years, it's definitely gotten worse, is this sort of like intractable difference between the permanent five members of the Security Council, which is uh, France, the UK, the US, Russia, and China. Um, and they're the five sort of countries that have veto power in the Security Council, which means they can threaten to halt action on basically anything they want. And so what we've seen in, in situations like Syria, like Myanmar, I mean, even the weaker situation in China is that because these states all have a personal interest in a lot of these situations, they just can't agree. That has prevented preventive action from taking place uh, in a lot of situations. And it's to the point where it's not just that they're, they can't come to an agreement on certain types of action. It's also that they can't even um, agree to disagree to some degree. So it used to be you would put a resolution forward and they would veto. And now they're disagreeing on whether to even have the meeting. I think it took them two months to negotiate a resolution on covid They're relationships that have been damaged for a long time, but they've gotten worse in recent years. And then you could also see, you know, the U.S. has also withdrawn from a lot of things that could help in the prevention of atrocities. So we withdrew from the Human Rights Council several years ago, you know, for various different reasons. But, you know, the U.S. could play a positive role in the prevention of atrocities through the Human Rights Council. And we're not there. We're not in the conversation anymore, which is really problematic because Human Rights Council mechanisms are actually really helpful at prevention, but also at documenting atrocity crimes. So ensuring that there is accountability somewhere down the road. And so we're losing sort of that. Uh, Although, I mean, those resolutions are to some degree being passed just without us. And then similarly, you know, the just general withdrawal from multilateralism. So the U.S. is dropping its funding for peacekeeping, dropping its funding for other mechanisms that help stabilize societies and prevent atrocities.
0: So, um, Jackie, is there anything else that you'd like the general public or our audience to know about the Global center for the responsibility to protect.
1: One of the interesting things we're we're trying to do work around this year is the 15th anniversary of R2P. So R2P was adopted at the 2005 UN World Summit. 2020 was sort of going to be a big year for for mobilizing action by states. So that's sort of been halted by COVID. But we've been posting a lot of interviews and events on our website around the 15th anniversary and. I think one of the the things we really focused on was domestic implementation, which you've been asking about. So on our website, we have sort of 25 points that we've asked states to try and uphold this year. And most of them are kind of focused on what changes can you make um, within your own country. Some of them are about multilateral activities like participation in peacekeeping, but uh, a good bit of it is about domestic policy and uh, accountability and things like that.
0: So, uh, what's the website where people can go to when they want to learn learn more?
1: It's www.globalrthenumber2p.org.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Jackie. Uh, you can find me online on Twitter at MissCherryPie, P I Like The Number Pie. And you can find me at
2: uh, Karen, U H K A R E N. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. Tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.